You know, defining moments for all of our lives come out of, often come out of crisis. And it's out of crisis that God works all things together for good to those who love him. War is a crisis, and America has gone through many. And they have shaped us. They have molded us. They have changed our way of thinking, our way of feeling, our way of living. Of course, the initial War of Independence, 1776, we would not be here were it not for those civilian soldiers who believed in freedom and justice and liberty for all. America learned something through the devastation of the Civil War, brother against brother. And those wounds were slowly healed, and out of that catastrophic event came a stronger America, became a nation. We learned something about acceptance and equality and justice for all. World War I, in which my father was engaged. The war that was supposed to end all wars. But it did not. For evil continues to rear its ugly head repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly. World War II came. A defining moment in my life and in the lives of many in this room. In fact... A defining moment as were all of those other moments. A defining moment for us as a people. As a people. War not only changes the lives of those who serve, who go off to serve, men and women. Whether it's for six months or three years or seven years in a prison camp or whatever it might be. The whole nation is altered. The, the nature of the nation is altered by that conflict. Give you some idea of how God can take bad times and out of a crisis bring something new and better. In 1940, one year before the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, in 1940, let me give you a succinct picture of America in those days. Three out of four farms did not have electricity, they had kerosene lamps. In the nation as a whole, there's one telephone for every seven persons, one car for every five. One-fourth of the homes in America didn't have running water. One-third had no flush toilets. The average American left school in the eighth grade. In 1941... The medical doctors had to reject nearly 50% of those who were being drafted or who were signing up for selective service because that act was passed. 50% of them were rejected because of malnutrition. The horrible catastrophe of the, of the depression that really began in about uh, 32 and the collapse of the stock market in 39. Underfed, undernourished, nearly half of the men had to be turned away. One half of the American children in 1940 lived in homes that had an income of less than $1,500 a year. 
Nine million men were unemployed. It was a difficult time. But out of that defining moment came a commitment. A commitment that America, with all of its problems, with all of the stresses that these statistics reveal, out of that came a stronger America, a healthier America, and a happier America. William Manchester, one of my favorite authors, written much about World War II and about history and about Churchill and about MacArthur and many others. Manchester uh, said, he he was in the Marine Corps, he was a a, a sergeant wounded on Okinawa and nearly killed. He said that we would not have won World War II had it not been for the Depression. He said, World War II was won by children of the Depression. And he went on to explain why. Because during the Depression, we realized that we really were our brother's keeper. And that if we didn't help one another and support one another and encourage one another, we were not going to make it through those difficult times. You never threw away anything. If you outgrew your shoes, you gave them to a little brother. And if you didn't have a little brother, you gave them to a neighbor. The suit got too small for you. You didn't throw it away. It was passed down to someone else. There was a sense of camaraderie and commitment. And that carried over into World War II when we were mixed up with people that we'd never known before who talked a little different because they were from Boston or Mississippi or Texas or or, uh, Oregon. We all came together out of a common commitment that we are our brother's keeper. And we won World War II. We were undermanned and we were undersupplied. When the Marines first landed on Guadalcanal, they had to use 1903 Springfield boat rifles in first combat. They didn't have the M1. They didn't have the Browning automatic rifle. They didn't have any of that. But it was commitment, commitment, commitment that made a difference in World War II. And the same is true in every war. We learned something out of Korea and out of Vietnam and out of the Gulf Storm. Now we come to the greatest defining moment in all of history. And that moment was on a hill. Not Sugarloaf Hill in Okinawa, but a hill called Calvary, where God himself came in person to say, we are brothers. I'm going to create a new nation, a nation of believers, a nation of followers, a kingdom of God. And he divided history in two. B.C., A.D. The greatest defining moment in my life and in yours is the moment we accept Jesus as our own personal Savior and become a part of the family of God, become a part of the army of God, become a part of the body of Christ, become a part of the fellowship of believers. Out of that defining moment on Calvary, where Jesus died for our sins, buried, rose again to give us new life and new hope, out of that came a group of people who started spreading the good news to the world. We preached about it last Sunday. After the Jesus ascension and the announcement, 
that he is gone to be with the father, but will return. Now you go, go into all the world and preach the gospel beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. 3000 converted on one day, more being converted every day, every day. And then persecution set in. Christians were being dispersed over all the world. And one crisis occurred in the life of the church, which was created at Pentecost. The body of Christ created at Pentecost out of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that church was growing so fast that they needed the disciples, the apostles, the original apostles needed some extra help. They couldn't take care of meeting the needs of the Grecian women. They couldn't take care of some of the physical problems. And so they said, we need to ordain some deacons. What does that word mean? It means servants. We need to ordain some servants who are going to help us with this and take over some of these matters. So they did. Now, if you would like to know, uh, have the Bible in front of you, take the Bible out of the book rack in front of you, turn to page 1083 and 1084, and you will find yourself in the book of Acts, in the sixth chapter, the sixth and seventh chapters of the book of Acts. And here is an incredible defining moment for the early church and for the church today, for every one of us. Today. And in those days when the number of disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against their, uh, the Hebrews because their widows were neglected. So they ordained deacons. The word deacon means servant. And they started serving. But they not only started serving tables and taking care of the practical needs of the early church. You look at the list of them, Stephen, Philip. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas. Those were the names of those first deacons. Well, let me talk about the first two for a moment. The second one's named Philip. Was he serving tables? Yes, he did for a while. And then he took the Great Commission personally and he went up into Samaria because he had heard the Great Commission was that we were to go into Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So Philip went up there. He was a deacon. He was not one of the original apostles. <clears throat> he was started preaching. He held a citywide crusade up there in Samaria and baptized an Ethiopian eunuch who went back to Ethiopia and is to him is attributed the fact that many Christians today in Ethiopia have come to know the Lord as their savior because of the influence of that Ethiopian eunuch who was converted under the preaching of Philip. Here's a deacon. You see, the church is, is moving toward lay people involved in all sorts of ministries. Priests, pastors, evangelists, we're all lay people in the sense that we're all to be witnesses. That's the key. Some witness in one way, some witness in another. Here's Philip, one of the first deacons, holding a citywide crusade. Howard Butt, Jr. is a layman. He's going to preach next Sunday. He's preached all over the world. <clears throat> he is basically a businessman and a writer and a lay leader, but God uses him in powerful ways, just as he did Philip preaching up there in Samaria. The first deacon was named Stephen. One of my favorite names, one of our favorite names. The reason we named our second son Stephen is because of our love for this man, Stephen. He was powerfully used by God and he preached one sermon. He only preached one sermon that we know about. He was obviously, apparently converted at the day of Pentecost or subsequent to that, he was one of the early Christians and he was elected because he was a man full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. And he found himself in a critical situation. Stephen, full of the faith and the power, did great wonders. 
And because of that, there arose a certain group of uh, the synagogue and they wanted, uh, they wanted to get rid of him. It says in the 10th verse, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. So they had a trial. Now I want you to picture yourself in a courtroom. And here are all of these religious leaders gathered there. And here is this one man, Stephen, and he is on trial. They bring false accusations against him. People come that are paid to make false accusations against Stephen. And so he begins to speak for himself. And it's one of the greatest sermons recorded in all of scripture. The sixth chapter and the seventh chapter of the book of Acts. And I wish you would read it sometime. We don't have time to read all of that now. So I'm going to hit the high points and then try to apply it uh, to our lives. Set up false witnesses which said this man speaks blasphemies and all of that. Then he stood up and he said. Seventh chapter. Men, brothers and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt. And he moves on and on and on through Jewish history. He had a grasp of Jewish history. And here he was preaching. He had never preached before. He had never preached before. And here he was preaching before this antagonistic crowd. Very antagonistic. And there was one young man standing there in particular who was directing all of the events. And his name was Saul of Tarsus. And here was Stephen preaching this incredible sermon. I know that he claimed the promise of the Lord. And Jesus said, when you find yourself in a tough spot, when you find yourself standing before people that you do not know how to deal with or how to speak to, it shall be given you in that hour what you will say. And here is Stephen claiming that promise from the Lord that I will tell you what to say and I'll give you the words to say it and I'll speak through you. Trust me. And he stood there and he preached. And then he moved through Jewish history to come to the declaration of Jesus as the Son of God, crucified on a cross, raised from the dead, and he has changed our lives. Now, he, was, he could see the crowd growing anxious. He could see them growing hostile. It showed on their faces. It showed in their body language. Now, he made statements that just turned them upside down. He said... The Most High does not dwell in temples made by hands. Here they were in worshiping this temple, believing that God and that temple were synonymous. And here is this man saying, that's not where God is. He has come to, to impregnate your spirit, your mind, your heart. God does not dwell in buildings. Nowhere in the New Testament does the word church ever refer to a building. It's people, it's flesh and blood. And here he is making this statement. Suddenly he was attacking the most sacred spot on all the earth as far as these religious Jews of that day were concerned. They couldn't handle that. And he could tell that, they, that, that he'd riled his crowd. Now, if you're a public speaker or if you're a teacher in school or in Sunday school or anywhere like, if you've ever been out in front of people a lot or a little, you can tell when you've lost your crowd. I mean, you can read their faces. 
Now, a lot of you don't realize that, but we read your face because you speak back to us by your spirit and by the expression on your face. Some of you don't know that we preachers look at you and we get encouraged and sometimes discouraged. Some we think are praying and then they jerk their heads like that, you know. And, uh, how many of you have ever had that experience speaking to a group of people and they left you? Okay, you understand. So Stephen could tell he'd lost his crowd. So he's, he, he kind of broke off his message and he says, you murderers, which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? As your fathers did, so do you. And when they heard these things, 54th verse, they were cut to the heart. Now I want you to notice that this is the most intellectual crowd, the most spiritual crowd. This is the religious crowd of the day. These are the people who are supposed to be the most erudite, the most understanding, the most educated, the most refined. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Isn't that an amazing expression? They gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried in a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. One sermon, one witness, an epical moment in Christian history. No one knew it at the time, but a historic moment in the cause of Christ in the world. Let me just glean a couple of thoughts here, kind of little footnotes to these scriptures that we're reading. He says, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, I don't want to kind of be nitpicky about words, but I like words and I listen to words and I use words and I love words. And I read in the Bible where it says, that, and I know this is a metaphor, I know this is an expression that's hard to a truth that's hard to put into words. I understand that. But it says that Jesus, when he returned to the Father, he sat down at the right hand of God. That he sat down at the right hand of God, the hand of power. But Stephen says, I saw him standing at the right hand of God. i tell you what I believe. I believe that Jesus stood up to welcome him. 
the gentlemanly Christ that he was. Here's a man who has been semper fidelis, always faithful. The scripture says, be faithful even unto death and I will give you a crown of life. Jesus stood up to welcome the first martyr and I believe he greeted him with outstretched arms and hugged him into eternity. You know, I believe he stands up for every Christian who is faithful even unto death may not be martyred. The word martyr is really the same word as witness, but a person who has been faithful. Witness. I believe Jesus stands up to welcome his family home. Don't you? That'd be like him. That would be like him. And then his prayer. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. You notice that's almost a literal echo from the cross of Christ. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And he fell asleep. Unfortunately, they broke up the chapter divisions, which were not part of the original text, They should have left the next verse as part of that story because the first verse of the eighth chapter is dynamite. And Saul, this young man who was directing all of the stoning of Stephen, stood there and watched the stones crush his head and bruise his body and watched the blood run out. And he thought, that's just what you deserve. He hated Christians He said he was breathing out threatenings and slaughterings against them. He wanted to obliterate every one of them from the face of the earth. And he was thrilled to see that man die. He stood there with the clothes of the executioner around him, the coats. He was consenting to it, supporting it, directing it. And then a few hours, maybe a few days following that, this same Saul with hatred still in his heart, seething with anger, because of these Christians, either walked or got on a horse and walked out of the Damascus gate, the northern gate on the city of Jerusalem that goes to Damascus. And I don't know how far up the road he got, either on horseback or walking, when a bright light shined from heaven and Paul fell in the dust of the Damascus road. And he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Do you hear what he said? Saul, he didn't say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute Stephen? He said, Saul, why do you persecute me? He's my body. He's my brother. He's my friend. You don't just persecute him. You persecute me. And Saul says, who are you? Lord, who are you? And Jesus answers, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you persecute. 
and Saul, blind, groping his way toward Damascus with the help of friends, said, what would you have me do? And the Lord says, go to Damascus to the street called Straight, and one Ananias will come and talk to you. Christianity's greatest Christian converted. Christianity's greatest theologian, greatest evangelist, greatest pastor, converted, became a Christian because of the witness of one sermon from a deacon, a layman. And what preacher wouldn't give his life to preach one sermon that God could use to create another Paul. Paul spent some time in Arabia studying, working over his own theology, for he had been converted dramatically and miraculously converted. And he went out to preach, established churches, wrote 24% of the New Testament. And behind every step that he took, And behind every word of every sermon stands the influence of a Christian layman who was faithful in his witness. I wonder if Paul was thinking of Stephen when he wrote, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew and to the Gentile alike. I wonder if he was thinking of Stephen's reward when he wrote, but I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. You see, there's a perfect balance always in God's plan. A perfect balance. Stephen died for the cause. Paul lived for it. And he later was executed as well. Perfect balance in all of God's plans. There is a sense in which Stephen was the physical price paid for Paul's ministry. You can do that. We can be that. We can be a Stephen in somebody's life. How was Paul influenced by Stephen? Let me mention a couple of three things very quickly. I don't know. It'd be great in a Sunday school class to think, what was it about Stephen and how God used Stephen and how God used what Stephen said to reach this, one of the greatest minds in the history of the world, even by non-Christians considered one of the three greatest minds in the history of the world, Plato, Aristotle, and Paul. Incredible intellectual, remarkable individual. What, What would influence a man like that? Well, I don't know, but I mentioned a couple of three things that I think. I think it was because of the way he looked. There was something about Stephen's face Paul later referred to it. Had an incredible glow about it. Looked different. And so then Saul of Tarsus, later the same man, Paul, he, 
He noted that that expression on his face. That's not all that unusual. Not that unusual at all. It is said that when Daniel Webster came down from his marvelous oratorical message on Bunker Hill, that they looked at him and he said he had an incredible glow about his face. And we know, of course, from the scripture that Moses, when he came down from the mountain, having been with God, that his face had this incredible expression about it. And then our Lord himself on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah and Peter, James and John there in their presence. He was talking to the father about his forthcoming death and the death he was going to accomplish. And he was just shrouded in all of his Shekinah glory. And the light was so bright they couldn't even look. I believe there's something about a person's countenance that can reveal the love of God. I don't know who said it, but I believe it, that God writes his name on men's faces. The look through your eyes, the expression on your face will communicate. There's something about the way he looked. And there was something about the way he prayed. He prayed for his executioners. He prayed for his enemies. Well, Paul's brilliant mind could compute that in a second. Here he was standing there listening to this man pray for those of us who are throwing stones at him. Paul said, That's not what the law says to do. The law says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Pick them up and throw them back. And if you're going to kill me, I'm going to try to take one or two of you with me. Get even. What would make a man do that? The law doesn't require that. And if it required it, you couldn't do it with an honest heart. What happened to that man that made him pray for his enemies and be willing to die? A martyr's death. I know the law. I'm steeped in the law. I'm a genius in the law. And the law never motivated me to pray for my enemies. What does that? He has a spirit I don't have. He has something in his heart I don't have in my heart. What is it? God was using the witness of this man, Stephen, to begin to crack the door open so that a few hours or days later, the Damascus Road, that door began to open wider and the light of God flashed through and blinded him and brought him to life and to light. And he brought his message through that man to us because of the motivation of that dying Stephen. Power of prayer. And then I believe he was... Paul was converted because of what Stephen said. He gave a good witness. God gave him words to say as he'll give you words to say. God gave you insights that you didn't know you had. God will bring scripture to your mind that you didn't even know know you knew. He'll speak through you. You may feel like you failed. Stephen, don't you know, it says in the eighth chapter, they took him out and buried him and they were just overcome with grief, asking the Lord, I'm sure they were, Lord, we needed Stephen. God, you know, 
what a bright light he was in the life of our church and one of the smartest men we have. Lord, why did you let that happen? Because God works all things together for good to those who love him. And out of the crucible of that horrible experience came the Apostle Paul. And came the message of Christ through the word of God to us. By what he said, just a word fitly spoken at a proper time can make a difference in somebody's life. Years ago, in fact, right after World War I, there was a terrible influenza epidemic and thousands of people died. You've read about that. Maybe a few of you here are old enough to remember that. Little boy and little girls, mother and father had died and friends put them on a train to go to a distant city to live with some relatives. They were traveling alone. Never been on a train never been out of their little town and here they were on this train in a strange environment going somewhere else to live their hearts broken they had a little sack of lunch and they were sitting there afraid to even move and trying to pick a little at their lunch and a man across the aisle tried to help them relax and he said tell me your names they told him their names and he said uh, where are you all going and they told him and then he said why are you going and they told him the sad story of their parents death so this man to his friends a bragging atheist unbeliever had a touch of sympathy in his heart for those two little children. So he said, why don't you let me take you to the diner and eat on the diner, on the dining car. Now some of you have never had that experience, but I'm telling you when I was growing up, that was the ultimate experience of a lifetime to walk in there and to be served on a white tablecloth and watch the world go by. How many of you remember having that experience? A few of you. A lot of you never even been on a train, let alone in a diner. But you live in a different world, and I don't. Uh, I, I, I do too. It's been a long time since I've eaten on a diner. But uh, they went in there, and they sat down, and they didn't know the protocol. They didn't know what to do. And so this man was helping them along, and they ordered a meal. And the meal came, and the little boy, the older, his little sister, the little boy said, uh, kind of looked around the dining car when the food was put on the table, looked around the dining car and uh, said, Sister, there's nobody in here returning thanks. And the little girl said, Bubba? Why don't you do it? So this little boy bowed his head. He'd never done this before because his mother and father had always led the prayer at the table. Little boy bowed his head and prayed a simple prayer of thanksgiving. 
that went straight through the heart of that unbeliever. And there on a dining car, that man, professing atheist, became a believer. Came back home, went forward in the church, when the invitation was given, was baptized, and spent the rest of his life as a loyal church member in a church in San Antonio, Texas. Now listen, if God can do that with the prayer of a child, what can he do through you? What can he do through us? If God can do this, death of this man, to produce another Paul, another messenger of Christ, if God can do that through a newly ordained deacon, what can he do? What can he do? If all of us will be faithful even unto death. Maybe God has spoken to your heart this morning as he spoke to that man on the train with a little boy and girl. Maybe God has spoken to your heart through the witness of Stephen, through the music, through the testimony. I don't know. But if God has prompted your heart to trust him as Savior or to be faithful by aligning, aligning yourself with his people by joining his church, do that this morning. All I want you to do, listen carefully, all I want you to do, not do a thing for Buckner Fanning. I'm not, I have nothing to do with that. All I want you to do is what God wants you to do. It's not for me. It's for you and him. And all I urge you to do is what God is prompting you to do. To trust him. To come forward as a Christian to say, I want to be a follower of Christ and be a member of this church. You know what God wants you to do right now. Maybe to come and rededicate your life, to just kneel and pray and return to your seat without a word spoken to anyone but the Lord. Wonderful. Whatever God impresses you to do, do it. Do it right now. Just as you are. Come on. Let's stand.